0: Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Scripture reading today will be in Luke 15. Uh, Go ahead and remain seated. We've got a longer portion to read today, and I'll just read it for us. Luke 15, we'll be starting in verse 1, reading uh, through the end of the chapter. Luke 15, beginning in verse 1, says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 coins if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have lost the coin. I'm sorry, I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perished here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. "'and bring the fatted calf and kill it, "'and let us eat and celebrate. "'For this my son was dead and is alive again. "'He was lost and is found.' "'And they began to celebrate. "'Now his older brother was in the field, "'and as he came and drew near to the house, "'he heard music and dancing, "'and he called one of the servants "'and asked what these things meant. "'And he said to him, "'Your brother has come. "'Your father has killed the fatted calf "'because he has received him back safe and sound.' "'But he was angry and refused to go in, his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, "Look these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him, and he said to him, "Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother." was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Father, I pray now that you would bless us as we try to study this great text. I pray that you would help us to learn, to grow, to benefit from our study of the Word this morning. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God has to say to us through your Word this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, We are continuing our study of Luke's gospel, and today I'm really going to shock you all because normally it takes me like two months to get through a chapter, Uh, but this morning we're going to cover the entire 15th chapter uh, in one sermon. And the reason we can do this is because although there are three parables in this chapter, all three have the same point and they're all answering the same objection. And so by the time we're we're through here today, you'll be able to see how this all fits together. Uh, But we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's start in verse one, says, now the tax collectors... And sinners were all drawing near uh, to hear him, to hear Jesus. We've talked about tax collectors in the past, but I just want to give you a quick refresher. Uh, The tax collectors were hated. They were some of the most hated people in all of Israel. They were considered to be the worst of sinners. And the tax collectors were hated for at least uh, three reasons. Number one, they were hated because they collected taxes. <laughs> Nobody likes paying taxes, right? And so uh, how much worse would it be if you actually saw the person you're paying taxes to? Uh, most of us, the taxes go out of our paycheck. We don't really know where it all goes after that. Uh, but to have to hand your taxes to somebody over and over, uh, you would not like that guy very much. Uh, number two, they were hated because they collected taxes for Rome. The Romans had conquered that area. They were occupying Israel during the time of Jesus, and the Jews hated them. The Romans had conquered all of the land, in fact, from England all the way to India, this huge landmass that was ruled over, under the Roman Empire. And in order to fund the Roman army, which was uh, occupying these countries, enforcing their rules, uh, and keeping everybody basically from revolting, They had to be funded by taxation, and so they collected taxes from all of the citizens. And so, you know, we don't like paying taxes, even though uh, at least some of the taxes uh, go towards things that benefit us, like roads and bridges and so forth. Well, imagine having to pay taxes that you knew were going to fund your enemies and their armies that were keeping you at bay. Uh, Talk about a, a terrible situation, yet this is what was happening. And so they hated these tax collectors, because uh, the tax collectors themselves were not Romans, they were Jews who had purchased a tax franchise from the Roman Empire, okay, And so you have Jews who are collecting taxes from their fellow Jews to give to the enemy, to give to the Romans who were uh, occupying their land. So you can imagine how they would be seen as traitors uh, to Israel. They were hated people. Not only were they hated because they collected taxes and because they collected taxes for the enemy. Uh, but thirdly, they were hated because they often cheated people. Tax collectors, for instance, would be told by Rome, uh, charge everybody $10, and then they would charge them all 12 and they'd pocket the rest. This was a common practice. And so the tax collectors, you think of Zacchaeus, for example, uh, got rich at his fellow Jews' expenses. Uh, they would cheat, cheat their fellow Jews out of money, uh, get rich out of it, and then give money to the enemy Romans. You can imagine how Devout Jews, like the Pharisees, would look at these people with absolute disgust. It was basically a mafia operation. They had the Roman army to enforce their taxation, even though they were cheating people and overcharging them. The Roman army was there to back them up. And so tax collectors were so despised by the Jews that they were not allowed in the synagogues, and their testimony wasn't even valid in court. They were considered to be the basest, worst of all sinners. And yet Jesus spent time with them. He even made one of them, Matthew, his apostle. Uh, This was an absolute outrage to the scribes and the Pharisees. And so in verse 1, you have tax collectors and then sinners, just kind of a vague term, uh, probably including prostitutes and the low lives of society, basically. And they're coming to Jesus. They're hanging around Christ. And in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So that's the criticism raised by the religious guys, which then leads to the rest of what follows in chapter 15. They are criticizing Jesus because he hangs out with sinners, with the lowlifes, which is something that a Pharisee would never do. I've mentioned before the word Pharisee means separated ones. Uh, they consider themselves to be holier and better than everybody else. And so they would not spend time uh, with those that they consider to be worse sinners. In fact, if a Pharisee came into contact Uh, with a Gentile or some other group that was looked down upon, if he bumped into you in the marketplace, uh, the Pharisee would go home and take a bath to ritually restore himself to his pure state. That was the way they looked down upon uh, those who they considered to be less godly. But not so with Jesus. He had an entirely different mindset. He welcomed everyone, and he spent time with these social outcasts. And in the next uh, 30 verses, Jesus gives his perspective on this. He tells three parables. Uh, If you have a Bible in front of you, you can look down in verses three to seven, you see the parable of the 100 sheep. And then in verses eight to 10, you have the parable of 10 coins. And finally, in verses 11 to 32, the parable of two sons, often called the parable of the prodigal son. In the first uh, parable, one out of a 100 sheep is lost. In the second parable, one out of 10 coins is lost. And in the third parable, one out of two sons is lost. And so you see a common thread that runs throughout all three of these stories. Something is lost, and then it is found. And in all three parables, uh, when the lost thing is recovered, the result is rejoicing. So we'll begin with uh, the first parable in in verse 3. It says, he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is simple enough. A shepherd has a 100 sheep. One of them goes missing and he searches until he finds it. When he finds the missing sheep, he brings it home and he throws a party uh, to celebrate that he's got it back. And you see, the point of this little illustration is in verse 7. When a sinner repents, there is rejoicing in heaven. So, why does Jesus hang around sinners? Well, because they are the ones that need to be brought back. They are the wandering sheep. This is the whole reason that Jesus came. He didn't come for righteous people, or we should say people that think they're righteous. Uh, He came for the unrighteous, those who knew that they were lost and broken. He came to call them to repent of their sins and follow him. This is what Jesus says in Luke 19.10, probably the most famous verse in all of Luke. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to lost people, those who were broken in their sins. He came to forgive them and to transform their lives. And that's exactly what the gospel does. It takes the lowest of the low. It takes the outcasts of society, and it gives them hope. Hope that we can have all of our sins forgiven fully and forever. Hope that we can live lives of purpose and joy in service to Christ. And so, of course, Jesus hung out with sinners. That's his mission field. Those are the people he came for. Criticizing him for doing so would be like criticizing a doctor for hanging out with sick people. That's his job. He didn't come to those who thought that they were righteous to give them a pat on the back. He came for those who know they're broken and fallen, and he came to help lift them up. So that's the first parable. One out of a hundred sheep is lost, it's recovered, and then there's rejoicing. Second parable, verse 8. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, This might be more relatable for those of us who don't have animals. Uh, We've never lost any sheep, but you've probably lost money. Uh, Maybe you had a a check and it went missing, and uh, you feel bad asking for the person to re-sign it and rewrite the whole thing. And so you start searching. You look all over the house for it, uh, trying to find it, and invariably you end up finding it in the couch cushion because that's where everything seems to go. Uh, But when you find that check or you find that money or something of value, you rejoice. You're thrilled at the fact that you've recovered it. And in the same way, God rejoices when he finds a lost sinner and they repent. When that wandering sheep comes home, nothing thrills the heart of God like that. Now the third parable, this is the longest, and the most famous of the three, the parable of, of the prodigal son. Uh, this is probably one of the most famous passage, passages in all of Scripture. In fact, uh, Charles Dickens said this was the greatest short story ever told. This is such a great image of how God forgives and restores those who turn back to him. We'll start in verse 11 where it says, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, this is very rude of the son. Uh, He's asking for his inheritance early, before the father's even dead. Uh, The father gives in, and he gives the inheritance to both of his sons. And as we'll find out later in the story, the older of the two sons stays home and apparently keeps doing what he's doing, working for his father. The younger son, however, the one who asked for the early inheritance— He's eager to take off and to be on his own. So verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took all of that inheritance that he had gained from his father, and he took a journey into a far country, got as far away from home as he could. And there he squandered his property with reckless living. So he takes off, he parties for a while, he makes some foolish decisions, and now he's flat broke and he has nowhere to go. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. This is life slapping this boy right upside the face. Uh, He thought he would party for a while, and of course, that was his fault. The famine's not his fault, though. That's just life. (laughs) So when, when you're out of money, that's when something bad always happens. And so this guy is completely broke. He has nobody to turn to. And so in verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Uh, he's in it deep now, if you know what I mean. Uh, now, when you first hear that, it, it doesn't sound like a great job, taking care of pigs. Seems like a a low-level, probably a smelly and gross job. But you got to think of how this would sound to the people Jesus was talking to. He's talking to devout religious Jews. Okay, pigs were not exactly... Uh, they were, let's just say, frowned upon in their society. And so the idea that a Jewish boy would be so low in life to where he would be uh, so desperate that he would hire himself out to work with pigs would be just shocking to them. But it gets even worse. Uh, Verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. This is a guy who has hit rock bottom. He's feeding these pigs. He has nowhere to stay, no friends, no money, And now he's looking at this pig slop and he's actually thinking about eating it. This is no doubt a picture of the lost sinner who is far from God. Sin is always foolish. It seems fun, but the person who chooses to live a life of sin is only thinking about today, only about this brief life, not thinking about eternity. Sin leaves you miserable. It may seem exciting at first. Satan is really good at uh, making promises about the pleasures of sin. But in the end, it costs you more than you wanted to pay. It takes you further than you intended to go, and it leaves you broken and miserable. Sin ruins your relationships. It hurts those who are closest to you. Sin wastes years of your life, and sin never satisfies. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So this boy comes to his senses. He remembers uh, the good times that he had back home. And we've all had that experience, right? You're 18 years old. You're uh, ready to leave home, be on your own, and then you get off to be an adult, and you realize how expensive it is to be an adult. And you wonder, how in the world could people have afforded to be an adult this long? Uh, but it's a rude awakening. You, you've got all these bills, all these things to, to, to pay for that you didn't even think about before. So that's where this guy is. He's thinking back and he says to himself, man, I, I had it so good back then. I had a rich dad who took care of all of my living expenses. And even his servants had it better than I have it now. And so he, he decides, I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm just going to ask to be one of his workers. I can't go back expecting to be treated like a son again. Uh, but I'll just go back and see if he'll at least hire me. Uh, to work in the field and to to make a wage so so I can have a living. Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now that's the the first half of his prepared speech. Remember, he's about to say, uh, let me be one of your hired workers. But the dad interrupts him in verse 22. Says the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. There's so much in these verses to consider. First of all, Let's remember, this is an illustration of how God responds when sinners repent. When the prodigal who has hit rock bottom and has nowhere else to turn finally comes to his senses and humbly returns, Jesus says this is how God reacts. He runs out to meet us. He doesn't rebuke us for our past decisions. There's no lecture about what a foolish person we were. Instead, there is instant forgiveness. The moment a sinner repents... His sins are immediately and forever forgotten. Notice also the requirements for forgiveness and restoration. The son did not have to bring any of the money back, and he couldn't have. He had spent it all. The son didn't have to prove himself for a period of time. All he had to do was come back. And that's all that's required of us. When we hit rock bottom, when we come to our senses and we regret the sinful life that we've chosen to live, Jesus doesn't require that we come to him and prove ourselves. He just wants us to return. He just wants us to repent. And this is why Jesus spent time with the lowest members of society, because they were aware of who they were. Uh, The the religious Pharisees, they were so self-righteous, they didn't see themselves as the prodigal son. And until you come to realize that you are lost and broken, until you see yourself as a sinner, you can never have those sins forgiven. You must recognize your sinful condition. And at at that point, all that is required to be forgiven and restored is repentance. Dean Ortland wrote this in his little book, Gentle and Lowly. He said, it is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. God's forgiveness is so much better than any humans. If you've been wronged by somebody, especially in a very painful way, it's difficult for us to ever fully forgive them. Even if we try to be nice and not hold a grudge against them, we still remember what they did to us. We still feel the hurt that they caused us. And so it may be that that relationship will never be the same again. And see, what we tend to do is project our weakness and our fallenness onto God. We confess our sins, we repent, we turn to him, but we still feel like he's angry with us. We feel like we, we can't pray right now because of what we've done. We have no right to talk to him. We might believe that he's forgiven us, but we still feel like maybe he doesn't want to hear for from us from a while. But Jesus is trying to show us that is not the heart of our father. He rejoices when the prodigal returns. He throws his arm around you the moment you turn your heart back to him, and he welcomes you back into the family instantly. This really gets to the heart of true Christianity. This is what separates biblical Christianity from all other religions in the world. Other religions tell you that in order to be forgiven of your sins and made right with God, you have to do certain works to earn his favor and his forgiveness. Uh, You need your good works to outweigh your bad works. You need to give a certain amount of charity. You need to say this many Hail Marys or pray this prayer every day. All of this is an attempt to make up for your sins. Jesus comes along and he says, forget all of that. You cannot earn forgiveness by doing good works. The only way to be forgiven is to run to God in humility and repentance for your sins and to trust in his grace to forgive you. He doesn't want you to try and work your way back to heaven. He wants you to realize your weakness and collapse into his mercy. That's what faith is. It's when you're trusting in his grace alone and his goodness to forgive you, And so this parable really isn't about the son, even though we often refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son. This is really a parable about a forgiving father. It's about the heart of God towards every person who comes running to him. Doesn't matter what place of sin they're coming from. But the story isn't done. The son comes home. The father's rejoicing. He throws this uh, party to celebrate. And you see in verse 23, it says that uh, he's going to kill the fattened calf and have a feast. Uh, the fattened calf was a cow that you would have and you'd keep it in a stall its whole life. Uh, kind of cruel. But they would keep it in a stall its whole life, not let it really range free so that it would get fat and juicy. Uh, basically taste more flavorful. And so, uh, this was basically saved for the most special of occasions during a wedding or something like that. They would kill the cat, uh, the, the, the fattened calf and, uh, and eat it. And so uh, the father is throwing this huge party because his son has returned and he says, let's kill the fattened calf. Let's, Let's party. This is like today going out and buying flaming yong or something. Let's have a huge celebration. Let's make this the best it can be. So the Jesus picks up the older brother's reaction to all of this in verse 25. Remember, we've got two sons. One of them runs away. The other one was home the whole time. It says, Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Okay, the brother's in the field. Presumably he's working. Uh, He hears all of this commotion, doesn't know what's happening, so he asks the servant, what is all this about? Verse 27, the servant says to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. Uh, The Pharisees just entered the story. Okay, Remember verse 2, they were grumbling at the fact that Jesus was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And so Jesus tells this story about the son who did all of these terrible things, returns in shame to his father. And the older brother in the story represents the religious Pharisees who are angry that the younger son has been forgiven and accepted. The older brother refuses to celebrate. And so his father comes out and in verse 29, uh, the son says to his father, look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The father says to his son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here's the bottom line principle that Jesus is teaching here. The religion of the Pharisees was one made for a moral, seemingly righteous people to show off their morality, their goodness, their superiority. Jesus was not about that. He came for those who knew that they were sinners, and he came to transform their lives. The religion of the Pharisees was all about pride. Jesus came for the humble. The Pharisees were all about works, and Jesus was all about grace. What we need to remember about Jesus is that he is God, become a human. And so when we look at Jesus and we see his heart, we are seeing the heart of our God. This is what God is like. The heart of compassion that Jesus has is the same compassion that God has. The forgiveness and grace extended to the worst uh, worst of sinners. That's the mercy of God's heart. I believe one of the reasons Jesus came to earth was to show us what God is like. Because when we read things in the Bible, sometimes it's hard for us to relate to that. Uh, We read things about God doing certain things. But when we see a person, we see the way that Jesus acts and the things that he says. It shows us what, what our God is like. And this is the way that God thinks. The surprising thing about God is that when he came to live among us, he didn't go spend time with the seemingly righteous people. Instead, he went to the lowest of the low. He went to the worst of sinners. And that's who he spent time with. There's so many verses in the Bible about forgiveness and the love of God for us. And I've concluded, I'm sorry, I I could have included uh, many of those verses in the sermon, but quite frankly, I don't think that's needed. Uh, This story gives us such a vivid image of the forgiveness of our father. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. He doesn't wait for us to fix our problems. He just wants us to recognize that we have a problem and run to him. Now, in light of all of this reality, a few points of application. First of all, the obvious one, don't be a Pharisee. When somebody with a sordid past comes to Christ, there should be no judgment from us whatsoever. They should find Christians to be nothing but welcoming. If we are followers of Jesus, let's have his heart of love and grace for the lost, especially since all of us were there ourselves at some point. And the only difference between you and whoever you consider to be the worst sinner is God's grace. Uh, Did you notice a a common ending to all three parables? When the shepherd finds his sheep, he calls his friends and his neighbors together to celebrate. When the woman finds her her lost coin, she calls her friends and her neighbors over to celebrate. And then in this last parable, when the son comes home, the father throws this huge party, and he, again, invites everybody to come in and celebrate. He even goes out to the field and urges the older brother to come in. Jesus is making this point. God celebrates when lost sinners repent and come to him, and you should too. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you ought to come in and join the celebration that these sinners are being forgiven and their lives are being transformed. Stop grumbling and start partying. Stop judging with them and start rejoicing with them. This is what we ought to be all about. Notice also that in the, the end of this final parable, Jesus leaves it open-ended. Uh, the father urges the brother, come in and celebrate. Your brother's return. But Jesus doesn't tell us what the brother's reaction was. Uh, does he repent? Does he go in and join the party? Uh, does he refuse stubbornly because he's still angry? We don't know. And I think the reason this is left open is Jesus is giving an open invitation to the Pharisees. He's saying it's not too late for you to adopt the mindset of your father and welcome these people into the kingdom of God. I want to close with um, one final application. Uh, I don't know all of your stories here, but I know a few of you. uh, And you've told me that you have friends, you have relatives, you have people in your life that you care about that are like this prodigal son. They've made some foolish decisions. They've gotten wrapped up in sin. And you're grieved at the mess that their life has become. Uh, probably all of us have somebody in our life that we're thinking of. Like, even as we're hearing this story of the prodigal son, we're thinking, man, I really hope that person in my life comes to God. I'd really love to see them repent. And no doubt, as I've been preaching this morning, you've been thinking about that prodigal that you feel like will never come home. Uh, and the message for you here is don't lose hope. God has changed the hearts of so many people. And often it takes us hitting rock bottom in our lives and realizing the mess that we've gotten ourselves into before we have that moment of coming to ourself and saying, I'm going to go to my father. Sometimes it takes us getting to the point of putting our head in the pig's trough and eating that slop for a while before it hits us. that There's a better way to live. But God is in the business of transforming sinners. He takes the lowest of the low and completely turns their life around. He did it in scripture. He's done it throughout the history of the church, and he's done it in some of our lives as well. Many of us in this room could tell incredible stories of where we were when Jesus saved us, when he changed our lives forever. And that's just what our God does. Nobody is beyond his power to save. You can't change a prodigal's heart. Uh, You can't convince, if you've ever tried to deal with somebody like this, you can't convince them to come back. Uh, You can't convince them to come to their senses. God has to do that. But here are three things that you can do. This is your role. As you think about that person in your life that you're wondering, is God ever going to pull them from where they are? Here's a few things for you to consider. Number one, you can pray for them. God can change the heart of a prodigal. Doesn't matter how far they've gone. No one is beyond his grace to save. Number two, you can live a godly life, so that when they come to the end of themselves, they'll think, "I want to have a life like that Christian that I know." Remember the the story of the prodigal. He's uh, he hits rock bottom, and who does he think about? He thinks about the servants of his father. And he says, "I remember those guys that worked in the field of my father, and they had it a lot better than I do." And a lot of times, what is needed for a prodigal to come home is just seeing an example of some Christian that he knows. And he says, boy, they've got a better life than I do. Maybe I should try uh, doing what they're doing. So number one, you can pray for them. Number two, you can be an example for them. Number three, you can be ready to welcome them with forgiveness and love when they do return. Uh, as soon as a sinner repents, we Christians ought to be right there to throw our arms around them. Not after they've proven themselves, not after they've cleaned up, We welcome without judgment. This is what Christians do. And the worst thing a Christian can do is be like these Pharisees. When somebody comes to God and and turns from their sin and comes to Christ, and we've got our arms folded watching them for a while with suspicion, that is not the reaction of Jesus. People ought to know that they can repent and they can come to Christ, and they won't be judged. They will receive love and a welcoming. They won't receive a lecture on how bad they were, Instead, we'll just celebrate the fact that they've come home. And so if you've got that person in your life and you're thinking about them, you're worried about them, keep on praying. Uh, Don't ever lose hope that they've gone too far. It may be like this prodigal at the lowest point in their life, that that's when they have nowhere left to turn, they have no hope left. That's when God will get a hold of their heart because this is what he loves to do. He takes broken and fallen people and he transforms them from the inside out. I want to point out one more thing as we close this morning. Uh, It's obvious in the text, but I didn't want to go without saying it. God loves you, and he loves you individually. Uh, Like the shepherd, he lost one sheep, and he didn't say, well, I've got 99 others. That's okay. No, he goes after that one. Some of us think, well, God loves sinners. God loves the world. Well, that's true, but God loves you too. God loves you personally. Like that shepherd, he goes out and finds the sheep, and he carries it on his back carries it home, and then celebrates. That's the heart of God for each sinner who repents and turns in desperation to Christ. As Jesus said in John six thirty seven: all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.